Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we have Jeff Kreuter. Jeff is a multi-award winning lighting designer. He has Tony Awards, Hughes Design Awards, Susie Bass Design Awards, and nominations for Drama Desk, Outer Critics Circle, Lortel Awards, Ovation, Ernie, and Odelco Awards. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. So great to be here. Thank you for having me, Jason. Thank you for joining me. How are you? That's such a funny question these days. Like, how are you? Um, it's a moving target. I'm like, I'm, go- I'm COVID good. I maybe like I would answer that question differently um, a year ago, but in the grand scheme of the world, I am healthy, and so I'm good. And you know, most most of my friends are healthy, and my family is again mostly healthy. So I'm happy about that. That's excellent news. You know, I've I've spent my life, my career, no, my life. I mean, like even when I was in like high school and junior high school. I don't think there were there was a week had gone by that I was not inside a theater um, making something. And, um, you know, now it's been a while. It hasn't been 11 months. I actually did. I did a little project in November um, in, a, in an actual room with other people turning lights on and off. Excellent. Um, but aside from that, it's been very different for me. Uh, now, one of the other things you had going on is you you were doing this amazing Sunday roundtables show with Four Wall. One, great work on those. Thanks. I love listening to those. But uh, if you can tell me some of the favorite ones you've had, because, I mean, you had production electricians, you had riggers. Uh, I was on the show with, like, the podcasters group. I don't have a favorite. I can tell you my least favorites easier than my favorites, but I'm not going to do that either. Um, <laughs> uh, but that, I don't know why that stands out, because maybe because I'm critical mm-hmm. of myself in a way, but um, or what we're doing. But I've learned from those. It, you know, it, when we've had those bad ones, it's like we get to the end of it, and I'm like, wow, that was tough. Um, what can we do to make it better next time? And um, invariably, we come back the next week having changed up, like something about the format is different to make it more interesting. It, it has evolved. Like, that's what I'll say. We thought we would be back to work by now. We thought when we started doing this, we were thought like, you know, we'll be lucky to reach 20 and then maybe continue on. And the fact that it's kept, kept on keeping on is probably not the greatest thing because it means we have time. And so do our guests because it's been, you know, hasn't been so hard to find people to commit to seven o'clock on a Sunday night. Um, and also viewers. I mean, like I, I'm, I'm assuming that once everybody's back to work, um, we won't get quite as many viewers either. Um, but we're going to continue doing it. I mean, not, not live Sundays, but when, once everybody's back to work, we'll still tape one, um, every couple of weeks, but it's been great. I've had a great time talking to people. I will say that's been like, it's been a highlight for me. Um, not, not just like talking to people on, on this, on the Sunday show, but talking to the guests in preparation and just getting to know people I haven't known before and, and just hearing, you know, what, what make, makes people tick. I mean, I'm sure you can relate that that's having done this as long as you've been doing it. Um, everyone's got a story and they're all fascinating. I'll say if, if there's something that was most fascinating for me, it was just finding out exactly how many different backstories there are for how to get into this business. Yeah. Yeah. I thought there were a lot. It turns out that there it's almost that there's that there's one for everyone. Yeah. But yeah, I'll, I'll say you're absolutely right about the thinking, oh, well, there's not going to be that there's not going to be that much time here. 
because like, I remember being concerned I wouldn't be able to finish my OSHA 30 course before work started again. And uh, well, that wasn't a problem. Yeah. April last year, I was cleaning my basement and I took everything apart to like get ready to clean the whole thing up. And um, as you know, this whole thing dug in even further, I was like, ah, I'll get to the basement eventually. And I still haven't finished it. I mean, it's still a disaster down there. So, you know, as soon as um, I have to go actually back to work on something, that last week is going to be me like, you know, finishing my my, my project, my, my downstairs project. So what I was really hoping to do on the show was talk in depth about some of your really key projects and really get into your process and, and how they worked and what you did. Sure. Uh, but before we do that, I just wonder if you could kind of give us uh, some, some thoughts about your early career, how you discovered lighting design, um, kind of just how you got into the business. Sure. As a kid, my, you know, my parents um, were both involved in community theater while I was growing up. So when I was a kid, you know, I would like help out with props for something and then like during rehearsal, like take a nap under the prop table, you know. And so my my mom like ran this community theater and my father like helped out with tech stuff and I would do whatever, you know, I was in some shows as a kid and even up through high school and, you know, worked on all sorts of areas, tech and backstage. And also, you know, I, I on, on top of that, you know, I was pretty active. I played like all kinds of sports when I was in junior high school and high school and was in a rock band and for like five seconds of my life thought I might be a musician. Um, and I feel like at a certain point it became clear to me that like as much as I loved it and as good as like as decent as I was, I wasn't like phenomenal. And then finally, like I did go to school for design and lived with two musicians who every day they would play their instruments and prove to me that I made the right choice <laughs> because they were just so fucking good. But as far as how it got started, so I guess at a certain point, I kind of enjoyed lighting. I mean, I, I having done like several different things, lighting was some somehow what I gravitated towards. Um, and then what happened was I did an internship. Um, so many, so many stories start with that internship, but I did, I, when I was, um, 15 or 16, I did an internship at the Berkshire theater festival and like that was the first time I was immersed in the world of professional theater with professional designers and directors and technicians. And just, I saw there's a place for me here. Like I, I, I can see myself in this world and I wonder how I can like figure out, like find my way in. And then I set about to doing that. And I asked a lot of questions I met. So I went to high school with Ken Posner's brother, like not really, he was like <laughs> four years ahead of me. So, but I was in, I was in junior high school when Ken Posner's brother was a senior in high school. So I'd met him. Um, Ken Posner, like when I was very young, was like this community theater organization before my mother, like was very involved with it. Ken's mom was involved and Ken, that's where Ken started doing lighting also. Um, so it goes back that far. So anyway, I'd met them and I saw, you know, I saw what Ken was doing at, you know, I think by the time I was in high school and he was working at the Berkshire Theater Festival. So that's the reason um, I ended up there because he was the assistant designer to Jeff Davis, who was the resident designer that summer. So meeting him was like the first sort of step towards becoming a designer for me. I see. It seems uh, almost impossibly lucky that you just happened to know uh, Ken Posner's brother as a high schooler. And, and then Ken, and then, you know, and then also, you know, and you can. So, and was able to ask him questions. It's always nice to have that person. It really is. I mean, especially that early on. Yeah. Yeah. To, to just to, you know, say, hey, I want to, I want to do this. Like, what do I, what do I do? 
And actually, Ken suggested that I go to purchase. He, he's the one that recommended Sooner Purchase to me. I see. Um, okay. And I and I went there, and I even went and studied with two of the more amazing, inspirational design professors I believe that there could be. Of course, I've only had two, so maybe other people are great, but I can't imagine anybody better than Bill Mincer and Brian McDevitt as teachers. And so from there, I mean, you know, you, you built quite a career and, uh, you know, I mean, you're known for your work on Broadway, but your CV is huge and extends way far away from New York. How did you end up doing so much stuff, you know, all over the place? Like anything, it starts with meeting people in, in, in certain places. And I, I'm not like a party animal. I don't go to like clubs and parties all over the place, but I'm also not like the most shy person. And so, and I'm interested in people and what they do. So, um, I think that's to me how I've built any sort of career is just being in the right place at the right time. That's how it works. That's how it really does sort of work. You have to put in a lot of work. I mean, I'm not going to say that I didn't bust my ass because I feel like up until 11 months ago, I've been busting my ass for like, you know, 25 or almost 30 years um, every day. So there's definitely a lot of work and a lot of like pounding the pavement and, you know, keeping in touch with people. But the first step is to meet people. And so uh, I, I do that still. I mean, you know, it doesn't change just because like I've had some success. It doesn't mean I don't have to like fight for the job because you still do. I don't think that ever, that ever actually ends. I, I know a designer who like, again, this is before the pandemic, would like walk around midtown Manhattan over the dinner break because he knew he'd run into someone that he might be able to talk to about like maybe a job sometime. So I wouldn't, I don't do that because I feel like that's extreme and I don't like, you know, weather enough, but, <laughs> but that's the sort of thing, you know, it doesn't just come to you. You have to, you have to put yourself in a position to get it and then hopefully go get it. But the first thing you have to do is put yourself in that position. So and okay. as far as like, you know, how like the stuff that I've done outside. So some specific examples, um, uh, like the Big Apple Circus, which I spent like two, I did two seasons of. I started working with them because a theater producer bought them out of bankruptcy with with a group of people and called me because he'd worked with me in theater and asked me if I would be interested in doing that. And, you know, my initial thought was. I don't, you know, I'm not sure I would because it sounds like distraction and would take me away from doing a theater show that I really want to do. But that's not what I said to him. I said, yes, absolutely. This is something I would love to do. Thinking that like, I figured the odds were against him actually being, being able to buy them out of bankruptcy and, and pulling this off. And why would I say no to something that, you know, that I didn't have to say no to? Turns out he did it and called me one day and said, we're doing this and this is how much money I can offer you. And I was like, wow, Okay. I'm going to do this. Like I'm joining the circus. Here we go. And I love a challenge and I'd never done that before. So I was like, yeah, this is great. And and I immersed myself in the world of circus. I lived in a trailer for three weeks, um, which was so much fun. I have to say, I mean, it was oh. dirty and messy and very wet because we had a very rainy summer, but so, yes. Yeah, so anyway, so that was one example. Um, the work, you know, I've done, I've done some TV work here and there, but the work on, um, particularly flesh and bone, which was the most extensive TV work I did. That was a three week job. Also, I got that because of a set designer, the production designer of flesh and bone was a theater set designer. And he and I early in our careers did a bunch of shows together off Broadway in teeny tiny little spaces, um, and he knew he needed a theatrical lighting designer and knew me. And so, you know, called me randomly out of the blue. Penn and Teller was because of my relationship with a New York general manager, um, 
And they, so Penn and Teller, I started working with Penn and Teller in, for their Broadway show um, because they wanted someone to work with them who knew New York, who, who was a New York designer. Um, so initially it wasn't clear whether I was just going to like help adapt or redesign at a certain point. There's a lot that went into this decision, um, partly because I also hired a director, uh, John Rando, who I've had a very long relationship with. And he said, let's like design the show. So we just, you know, we did a whole new design, the set sets, lights, direction. We actually, instead of just taking their Vegas show and moving it to New York, we, you know, we took sections of their Vegas show, obviously, because they didn't do anything new, but we put it into a very New York envelope and designed it like a Broadway show. Um, and because of that, I, uh, that experience, I got close, you know, I worked very closely with Teller in particular, and then he and slash they hired me to come to Vegas, uh, along with the set designer who did New York to, um, to redesign their show out there. I see. And, and what that is just, you know, d- designing the Penn Teller show out there, like we, we, you know, we did a real tech and a real design and, and set them off. And of course that show changes all the time. So what I ultimately did was designed uh, the initial pass at a, several of the of the sections but there's um matt staniak who works for them full-time as our lighting designer is lighting every day i mean when when they work not like again pre-pandemic um he's there every day doing lighting and then i go out there once a year twice a year and just like have a look and when it comes time to like changing the light plot or buying new equipment or updating things, which is we're about ready. We were about to do that. We were actually about to, you know, make a big change to the lighting rig before the shutdown. Then I, I'm, I'm more involved in the infrastructure of it. Got it. Got it. Were there any real highlights in regional, you know, things that you wished could have moved, but didn't, or things that, you know, are just, were just experimental and you knew would never have a life beyond that, but were important to you? I did a, a play called Colossal at the Dallas Theater Center about um, a football player who becomes paralyzed, also happens to be gay. I thought that that's the best thing that I've worked on that has not like had a life that I was involved in. I, I think the show was done regionally um, many times all over the place, but not not with me, not with not with our team. You know, I think it was just done like, yeah. you know, separately. Um I really loved that show and thought it could have um, had a life for, for me beyond it. You also have an extensive portfolio of dance shows you've designed. Is there anything about any of those that you'd really like to bring up? Yeah. So, so number one, um, I started lighting dance projects when I was at, in college. Um, I would like at that time, I, I don't actually, I don't even know how it is anymore there. But at the time, we weren't really allowed to go work in the dance department. So we had to do it under an assumed name. Like literally, I would go light like senior projects for choreographers using a different name. I think, you know, if I remember correctly, my my teachers, as previously mentioned, were Bill Mincer and Brian McDevitt. And I think the name I used was like Billy Brian McMincer or something like that. Just to <laughs> say like, like, screw you, like I'm doing this. So that, I'm, I'm sure they knew it was me. God forbid your undergraduate students should learn to do anything other than light new plays as controlled by them. I know it never really made sense, but I think I have a feeling there's a little bit more collaboration between departments now, but I, you know, talk about meeting people. I met, um, I met a lot of choreographers. So the first jobs I got moving to New York were with dance companies and were with choreographers doing very strange shows in very strange places all over New York city. Um, and that's how I learned how to turn lights on and off really at first. I mean, like, 
that my first practical experience was in dance lighting. Um, and along the way, very early on, I met a choreographer named Jennifer Muller, who was at, at that point, this was like, I think um, I met her in 1992. Um, she had already been very well established and was a, a force in the modern dance movement. Um, in 1996, she hired me as her lighting designer and I went on a, a world tour with her which is highlighted still highlight of my life um, touring with a dance company all over the place, including Siberia of all the crazy things. And I've been her designer ever since nine, since 1996. Um, oh, wow. I'm, I work with, I do one premiere with her every year um, until this year. <laughs> um, That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I learn every time I work with her, I learn something. She has a very specific eye for lighting. She has an aesthetic. She has a very particular lighting aesthetic that is not necessarily my lighting aesthetic. And I know that going in and I, you know, I know what, I know what she wants and I know how to make it mine. And she, over the years has come over to my side of things a little bit. Um, and you know, and, but still like she has a very strong, um, conceptual idea of what lighting is for her pieces. When she's choreographing a piece, she's imagining the lighting. And then I get to add my own thing to that and hopefully make it, you know, hopefully Im Im improve it and make it a better evening in some way. And I'm sure there's been a miss or two here and there, but I think mostly not. Mostly we've, we've been really great together. Jennifer's work is so packed with emotion and that's also a part of what I love about it. And lighting is emotional. I mean, there's something like what, I mean, at least what I like to do as a lighting designer, there's an emotional quality to it, um, which is why I love working with her. So if I could ask you about your work on Peter and the Starcatcher, in, in my opinion, a show that had a really outsized impact. Yeah. You know, it was off-Broadway first, then on-Broadway, and then off-Broadway again for, for longer. I don't know exactly how long, but for a while. So it had a New York presence for a pretty long time. And then did a first national tour and a second national tour. So it, it did have its, it had a footprint there for a little while. And I think like any show that becomes popular with colleges, there's a perpetuating interest. So I think that is also why it had an impact is because young people kind of fell in love with it and, and did it for a long time. I think it's a bold choice for theater companies and colleges and high schools to do because it's not your cardboard cutout musical or play. Um, there's so much more to it than that. There absolutely is. Um, and I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts about the show as a whole, but I also want to hear about how did you get connected with it in the first place? I'm going to start by saying that um, I can spend hours talking about this show. Um, so I'm, so I'm not going to do that. I'm, we're going to, I'm going to go through this very quickly. Um, but um, I'm, you know, that the live design plot lines thing that they've started, this, this show that they're doing, I'm, I'm going to do a, um, a Peter and the Starcatcher plot lines um, in the next couple of weeks at some point. So oh, okay. there will be a very, very deep dive into, into Peter and the Starcatcher. And, and, you know, they, they sort of asked me what show I would want to do. And I actually chose this one because I, I haven't really thought about this show in such a long time. I mean, it really hasn't. I mean, I did it. It was done. And I didn't so much look back. Um, and a lot has happened since then. And so I feel like the time is right for me to revisit it. And one of the things that happened since then is that Roger Reese passed away. So it, it has been very hard to go back and think about it because I worked very closely with him on, on that show. But to your question, how did I get involved? Well, and he, he was such a lauded actor. Yeah. And then having this project be his Broadway directorial debut. Yeah. Having been uh, an acclaimed actor and um, 
uh, a performer like TV and film and, you know, of course, all over the West End and Broadway. Um, he was also a director, but, you know, before he made his Broadway debut with Peter and the Starcatcher, he had directed a lot and was incredibly talented at that as well. Um, and brought so much to Peter and the Starcatcher. I mean, um, some people know this, not everybody knows this. Peter and the Starcatcher had two directors, which is pretty rare. In fact, I don't think I've ever experienced that before. Um, Alex Timbers and Roger Reese, and they each brought something very important and distinct to the process. So how did you get connected with the show? So my connection was actually through Alex Timbers. Um, I had known Roger. Um, when Roger was running Williamson Theater Festival, um, his assistant was trying to get me hired on a couple of shows up there and through either scheduling or other reasons i it never worked out but but he and i met so he knew me um alex and i had met years earlier and had done a couple of things together and he wanted me to be a part of this and convince roger that i was the right choice and we actually went and did a workshop of it at um la jolla so they actually hired me for this workshop in la jolla it was a it was like a three-week or two, two and a half or three week process where they didn't really know, you know, they had, they had the show, but they didn't know exactly what they had and they needed some time to figure this out. What they had was like a big chunk of the first act that they workshopped at Williamstown. And I very distinctly remember like every time. So, so, you know, I, when I was first brought onto the project, we would have these meetings at Disney's headquarters on 42nd street and Roger would act out for me this big part of the first act. And that, and then I very distinctly remember every time somebody new joined the process, we would have another meeting at the Disney offices and, and I would watch Roger again, act out this like very you know, long <laughs> section. It was always, it was great. I, it, it seared in my mind. Um, and I'll, I'll, you know, hopefully I'll never forget it. So that's how it started. You know, I started working on the, um, uh, on the show for this workshop and we didn't really know what it was, um, like from a design standpoint, you know, I, I think we knew what the show was, but they were, but we didn't know what the tone was and they were figuring out what worked, what didn't work like any, like any process of trying to workshop something and, and including in front of an audience. I mean, we would, we would do previews and then spend the next, you know, for days and days working, which is, you know, it's pretty, you know, a lot, this is not unique. A lot of shows have the same process, but it was kind of fascinating watching this show change from, you know, from that first performance to the, to the last one there in La Jolla. Um, they would have um, color-coded script updates every day. And by the time we were done, my script looked like a giant rainbow of, of changes. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't think that there was a single page in that script that was the same as it was when we started out. And so we used that time there uh, from a design standpoint to figure out what, how lighting in particular, lighting and sound, but you know, for me, lighting played a part in the storytelling uh, what what was lighting's role? There, there's so much imagery used in the script and in the dialogue. Is does light reinforce all of that, or does it support it? Does it stand by and, and like you know surround it? I guess um, like if you know if they're talking about jumping through a hatch to go from one part deck of a ship to another, is there like a box of light on the floor that they're jumping through? Um, if they create a doorway with a bunch of people and like you know if there's to create like a, a a wall using people standing someplace and then one of those people becomes a door does the light highlight that one person and even more specifically does it highlight that person's hand that just became a doorknob and almost in every instance the answer was yes to those questions and and lighting supported the storytelling 
um, throughout in, in every way. And I will say the first act was super specific. And the second act was not so much. We, I, I feel like as a lighting designer, I, I understood completely what the first act looked like and then did not really understand the second act until we got to New York Theater Workshop. And then that, that changed for me. So that's a very long answer to how I got the job, I guess, and, and, the, and the humble beginnings of Peter and the Starcatcher. So these conversations that you were having about what's lighting's role here? Is it supporting? Is it making statements? What kind of statements is it making? How do those conversations work? Did you have them with each of the directors? Great question. Oh, my God. Um, yes. So, you know, I wasn't exactly a young designer at that point in my life. You know, it wasn't that long ago. Um, so I wasn't like a, I wasn't a child lighting designer. So I had, you know, just enough experience to feel like I knew what I was doing. And there were days early on in that tech process that I just wanted to like run out of the theater and scream because when I say like literally one of them would turn to me and say, make this red. And the other one would come up to me and whisper in my ear, actually, I want that to be blue. And, you know, I was like, what the fuck do I do? Um, Cause my, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a pleaser <laughs> I, and I do, I mean, I really do. I like, I feel like the director is the person in the room to please. Um, I'm, I consider myself a designer's director. I hope there are not directors listening to this who are saying like that hack is not a designer's director. He's a jerk. <laughs> but I think the, the reason I got hired, the reason I get hired, I, I get hired because of the director. That's who hires me nine times out of 10 or eight times out of 10. It's the director for theater shows. And so I was eager to please. And I remember like after the red blue craziness, I called the producer at Disney and I was like, I don't know what to do. Like they're, they do not share an aesthetic. And so she talked me off my little tiny ledge, you know, my three foot ledge. And we then began the process of the three of us talking to each other about how we would work together. And we started speaking as a group instead of one person running up to me and, yeah, and, and saying, like, is having a whim. And ultimately, if I actually had to, if I had to define it, and this is how it, I think the entire production worked, if I had to define this, Alex is a, is, a, is a theatrical person and a theatrical director and really sees a big picture. And Roger is a very emotional director and really sort of saw the very small nuances. And I think that's how it that's how it worked with me as the lighting designer also. Um, they both had a lot to say to me. And after the first week at La Jolla, they both started speaking a language that I was able to understand. And that is why I remained with this show, I, will, I have to say. Um, I think that there were, I mean, I think Disney was, um, resigned like they like so at the end of the process um, I made an, enough of an impression on Disney that they were considering me for newsies that that's how I got newsies I got newsies because I did this three-week tiny workshop of Peter and the Starcatcher at La Jolla and you know the entire Disney New York office moved in and set their tech tables up right behind me and the question wasn't newsies but the way I got newsies was because I knew the director of newsies I had worked very closely with the set designer and um, I'd worked at the theater, Paper Mill Playhouse originally produced it, and I had a, just begun my relationship with Disney. And if it weren't for all four of those things, I would not have done Newsies. That, it, everything had to come together at the same exact moment for that to work. So Disney like kind of kind of dug me. Um, New York Theater Workshop, on the other hand, didn't like care. Like they they had they have their people, and I think they wanted their people. But Disney was able to say, and also well, Disney and Roger and Alex all fought for me, and they were able to say it would be a bad idea to start over. Like Jeff has navigated these two directors, he's made the show look good. 
He understands the language and the aesthetic. We should use him. And I think New York Theater Workshop back down. Although I don't know the details of that story. All I know is I, I know that New York Theater Workshop wanted one of their like, you know, people to do it. And I know that Disney and Roger and Alex fought for me. I don't know what happened other than that. So there. <laughs> okay. So thank you, Disney. And thank you, Roger and Alex. What are some of the tasks that you knew that you had to accomplish? What are some of the tasks that they talked about you accomplishing with them uh, other than actor illumination and setting location? It's funny, like actor, yes, actor illumination that, that that never came up in any of our conversations. I guess that's just a sort of known it's part of the job, I guess. I don't know. Um, atmosphere. It was heavy on atmosphere and composition, all those buzzwords that you learned about in college, but it's true. Um, atmosphere, composition, and storytelling. Like that is like that. That's what the process was. And storytelling could be location, and it could be time of day, and it could be an abstract version of that location and time of day, which is what it was. It wasn't. Re- there wasn't much realistic about the show at all the, from a lighting approach, but it was how we were heightening these realities and what the abstractions were. Um, and our pre-production, like we, our chats about lighting were so not specific about lighting. We talked about, you know, space and time and storytelling and um, uh, uh, process and um, tone, but they really spoke to me the way they speak to an actor in a way, in a way. I mean, you know, uh, and now that changed when, when we're actually doing it and when we're actually in tech. No, they would they would like, you know, they would turn and say, like, I, this should be red or this should be blue uh, at certain points. But but I will say they were they were respectful of me and let me do something before they commented on it. Like we I, I, we rarely they rarely came to me and said, here's how I want this to look. They almost in every situation let me take a pass at it and then commented on what I had done. And now perhaps what I had done was completely wrong and we went a different direction. Usually it was, OK, you've done this and now can we or wouldn't it be great if we also or I love this idea but we're getting to it too soon or, you know, or it's too bright or it's too dark. I mean, basic shit like that also, or it's too blue or it's too red, <laughs> but that that's, that's how the process worked. And that's my favorite kind of process. You know, let me, let me do it. And then tell me that I've done it right or done it wrong. What were some of the, like the big elements that you had to create or find a way to create with respect to supporting storytelling or atmosphere? On a very large level, act one is, incredibly claustrophobic and small and tight and confined spaces and dangerous and act two is wide open and big and lush and airy and dangerous so there's a huge contrast between act one and act two that's like inherently built in to the to the story it, for act one it was it was about how to create these small spaces and and what we were doing to confine the light um and make it you know at the end of the day, it's a comedy too. So confine the light and make it dangerous and make it small and claustrophobic, but also just funny enough. And that was a balance that we had to really ride. And you know, what was just funny enough at New York Theater Workshop was really not funny enough lighting wise at um, the Brooks Atkinson Theater. And so, you know, I remember our first preview and I remember like the general manager came up to me and was like, do you think the show's too dark? And I was like, well, I don't think the show's too dark, but if you're asking me if I think like that first big scene in act one where we meet Black Stash is too dark, yes, that's too dark. 
and then other things. Contrast is everything, right? So once we get like the stuff that's supposed to be like broad and funny and silly, bright enough to read, then the dark parts will just look artsy, which is, I think, ultimately what happened. What are some of the key differences in creating that the small, claustrophobic and dangerous space versus the big and lush and beautiful and dangerous space? Well, I, I will. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the set played a huge role in this. Danielle Worley designed a really cool set that was like full of textures. I mean, you know, th- th- things that I could use to light through and against and in front of and on that would help me tell that story. Um, Completely nonspecific. You couldn't look at this set and say, oh yeah, I know where we are because that's, that's not what the design was all about. But that gave me as a lighting designer the opportunity to help, you know, define where we are. Um, So in specific, so uh, I, you know, act one, the set was smaller and the grid was lower. So in act two, the walls all, went away. The, the act one walls disappeared and act two walls came in. It was a very different look um, with more color. Uh, and uh, and the grid flew out also, you know, I think four feet higher. Um, so that alone um, aided in in that. But but um, act one, the we defined and confined space with light. The performers were playing in small boxes. And in Act 2, we really didn't do that. It was a full field. We saw the entire thing the whole time. Act 1 was more about shafts of light in space. And Act 2 was more about a a full field. More about, again, like an abstraction of what my version of daylight was. Understood. Tell me about assembling your team for the show. You had uh, associate Joel Silver and then assistants Corey Paddock and Andy Fritch. Yeah. Uh, how'd you get connected with them? And then I have some questions about your process of working with them. So, okay, I'm going to go back a step further. So La Jolla and New York Theater Workshop was Grant Yeager, who has had assisted me for many years at the time. And um, here's what happened. So so Grant Yeager did the show with me at New York Theater Workshop. Um, I should also mention mention uh, Alex Verbosi programmed the show at New York Theater Workshop. Um, Tim Rogers programmed on Broadway. So um, Grant was the first assistant at New York Theater Workshop, and Corey Paddock was the second assistant. I believe he came in at a certain point. I don't. I don't even. I think he was there through the whole process. Um, uh, but he wasn't involved in pre-production. Uh, so Grant did all of the initial drafting of of the show, the workshop. So then, when it came time, we finally got the go ahead, and the show was moving to Broadway. It was teching, like, not exactly on top of, but pretty damn close like yeah so um it was teching while i was still doing newsies so so newsies and peter and the star catcher although i don't think that actual 10 out of 12 tech days overlapped but the um the the peter and the star catcher tech began right as newsies was in like previews or something like that yeah i think it was i think that's how it was i actually think opening night of um, Newsies was the like second preview of Peter and the Starcatcher. So, so all that is to say, all of that walk down memory lane is to say that I could not be at the beginning of tech for Peter and the Starcatcher full time. So until I was finished with Newsies and was able to come over, I needed someone who was a real designer. Um, Joel Silver is a designer. He had assisted me on other projects. So I hired him to basically design, like, you know, adapt, not design. Like he, he, they took the New York theater workshop file and put that in the board 
and then set about to like recreate the design from downtown in an uptown sort of way. And I think they did act one, they took a passive act one and then I showed up and took a passive act one. And then I was there for most of act two. Got it. But, um, but that's how Joel was involved. He hired Andy. Andy came from Joel. Corey was the first assistant on Newsies. Um, when I was done with Newsies, Joel at that point, you know, early in previews, Joel had to leave Starcatcher to go to another job. So I brought Corey over to Starcatcher to take over for Joel. And that's how, that is how that happened. And then Corey took over Starcatcher and did the transfer to the New, uh, New World Stages, which was the second off-Broadway venue, and then did the tour, uh, the first tour. And then Jake DeGroote did uh, the adaptation for the second national tour. Okay. So it all, it was all based on um, the, the, the New York Theater Workshop, like production though. So that, that is what moved to Broadway. And then, you know, I, I, I give Joel all the credit for like keeping it together with Tim Rogers, the two of them until I could show up and like, you know, actually, actually like, you know, take it apart and put it back together. I'm sure I put some of the things back together where they had it, but I still needed to ruin it before I, you know, <laughs> before I did. And I did, I fuck, I totally, I totally did. Like, you know, be, I, I definitely took a step back before taking some steps forward, but you know, whatever I had to. <laughs> So I, I'd like to ask you about how you break up workload among your team and uh, how you assign jobs to them. Uh, clearly, it does definitely have something to do with what their skills are and what their skill sets that they bring to the job are. Yeah, it has a lot to do with their skill set, but I also hire them based on that skill set. So it has to do more often than not with my need on a particular show. If I'm gonna, if I'm not gonna be around through previews, I need someone who could work with the director and make changes, you know, um, into previews. I, I generally don't have someone else like tech a show for me. That doesn't really happen. If I, if it's a situation where I can't be there for any part of tech, I will have someone as a co-designer. So we share responsibility and share ownership also is pretty important to me. So, you know, there are people who have been associates of mine that have been like bumped up to co-designer at certain points. Um, <clears throat> you know, on a big musical, I need someone who knows how to call follow spots because that's something that I don't, uh, especially on in a Broadway situation um, or even off Broadway, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time on follow spots. I, I leave that to the, to the follow spot assistant to basically design all of that. Um, I don't, I don't, I mean, I think that's fairly common. I don't think I, I say that like I, like I'm the one who does that. No, I think, I feel like it's fairly common that the follow spot assistant is like routining and designing follow spots. So I want to pick someone who understands how to do that. And, you know, uh, paperwork and drafting and relationships with everyone else in the room are very important. And I won't hire someone that has bad paperwork skills. And that doesn't mean pretty. It doesn't have to look beautiful. It has to be accurate. So when I say paperwork skills, I mean uh, accuracy and someone who can work very quickly and disseminate information to an electrician and to a stage manager and and just be like the person that holds the shit together in the room for me. When I'm pulling my hair out of my head, I would I would like the assistant not to be pulling their hair out of their head. That makes sense. And once you're in tech, how do you kind of break up responsibilities among your among your team? Obviously, you have a follow spot assistant who's handling all of the follow spot stuff, and that's tracking and also deciding what they're doing. Yeah. But all the other stuff. Sometimes, especially on a show that has a 
lot of cues. My assistant will communicate with the stage manager and keep track of where the cues go. And I will talk directly to the programmer. Um, I, I, you know, I, I speak to the programmer. I don't, I don't speak through someone else. Um, the programmer and I have a back and forth and we design the show together and the assistant, um, always keeps track of where the cues are and what the cues do and keeps a keeps a cue list a cue synopsis um always keeps track of like all the work notes that pile up like you know all day long and to and to make sure they get done um and also help me find things that i'm looking for when i when i want to turn on you know a fixture from upright and i can't figure out what that number is because i have some sort of momentary mental block the great like the great assistants know what i'm trying to do and help me and so that is that is something that i appreciate too and also and and i have to say um a good assistant knows when to interject artistic input if they you know if they see me doing something and they maybe have an idea of what i if they understand what i'm trying to do and see that there's another way to do it i i welcome someone like whispering in my ear at some point try this it might work better i don't necessarily want them to do that in the moment while I'm like hurting myself because that'll just make me hurt myself more. But, you know, another set of eyes, I guess, I guess the other, like the, I think the cliche way to say it is that I like having another set of eyes at the table. Um, That's cliche because that's all, because a lot of people say it, but it's true. It's nice to have someone else at the table who has a design sense that can help me assist me in the design. How intelligent versus conventional was Peter in the Starcatcher? It was it was so intelligent, man. No, it was um as far as number of lights, fewer moving lights than conventional lights, but moving lights did more than anything else. Like there were a lot of conventionals in that show. Um, the show is lit with moving lights, and the show is lit with like twenty five, I think. But those twenty five lights really did everything. Mm-hmm. Um, did it all? Yeah, they really did. I want to ask how much you pre-queued, but. It's a tough question to answer when you've had three iterations of the show already. Yeah, the show was fully pre-queued. I mean, getting getting to Broadway, there was a there was a full queue. Like every there were queues. They put a disc in the board from New York Theater Workshop. Now we did add moving lights for for Broadway, so there was you know incorporating that. But they also we added the moving lights exactly where <laughs> they should have gone. You know exactly where we wanted them in the first place. So incorporating those new moving lights in really was very was seamless because it all just made sense like okay so now this light doesn't have to like turn off recal in like 0.2 seconds and come back up over there it can just fade out and another light can fade up and do the special like that sort of thing so once you were in previews on 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 peter and tell me if this is similar for other shows you do what's your process other you know barring new blocking new pages or other reasons for a relight i'm a tinkerer i don't sit and and not work. I will, as I said before, I will I will take it apart and break it and put it back together. Uh, because yeah, because it's never done, right? I mean, I feel like the work. There's always a way to improve it. Um, and at a certain point, I have to realize that I can't make it any better and just be happy. But it's still, like, I will look at something and I'll be like, you know, I wish, you know, whatever. I wish that I wish that light was more something, or I wish this scene looked more like this, or you know, the moon comes from the wrong direction. Like if, if, if I'm in the theater working, I'm going to continue to work 
on the on the show. Now, with Peter and Starcatcher, there was a lot of tinkering and there was a lot of breaking and, and fixing, but there were also a lot of changes. So there were blocking changes and script changes every day. So my stupid tinkering about my own personal stuff was definitely second um, to the working on the act, like you know what everyone else is working on working on the reblocking, you know, as it's funny, like in these Broadway afternoon preview rehearsals where, you know, you think you have a four hour rehearsal, but there's also like, um, you know, a, a bunch of 10 minute breaks and like let people get out of mic, uh, early and, um, you know, wash up and clean up and move tech tables. Like these, a, a four or five hour rehearsal easily turns into a three hour rehearsal. Um, and if you're doing a, sh- if you're on a show that has a Wednesday matinee and a Monday off, then that's your, you get like nine hours a week to work. That's it. Like people don't really think about that in those basic levels. Now, most shows are smart and in previews don't do the Wednesday matinee. So you get, you know, four days a week and a lot of shows are smart and don't do a Monday off. They do a Sunday off. So you get five, but still you're not getting more than three hours a day of work of actual work time for queuing. So, you know, you have to use, you have to really budget your time well. Um, and it's incredible how how fast it goes, just how, how fast that time goes. And then moving to tour, when you were building the sit-down show, were you thinking about the tour at all? No, not even not even for a second. I didn't think about how it would translate to a tour at all. I thought about how the hell we were going to get it up in the amount of time we had. Um, and and we were lucky enough to do that. The tour was different. It was a different... This, the, the approach was exactly the same. The light plot was different. We could not really go on the road with front of house moving light specials that we had, we had a lot of front of house moving lights in New York that doesn't really translate light light to the, to the road very well. Um, and we had more focusing Lico's in the Broadway production that a road show could tolerate just for time. So we had to, you know, there were, there there were replacements along the way and simplifications. Um, but we also knew what we needed. We had basic area light, like, you know, side light to every area on, on Broadway. And um, we knew that for the tour, we didn't need that because on Broadway, we actually probably turned a lot of those lights into specials anyway. Um, when we when we weren't like doing full stage giant washes, <laughs> you know, it's not really a full stage wash kind of show. But I had that stuff there in case, you know, we needed to be covered someplace. When we got through the show once and I realized that we didn't need that sort of coverage, we turned those lights into scenery specials or accents. And then on the road, moving lights did that stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Because they had to. It's also, I mean, you know, the, every theater is different. So having having those lights front of house, it's not going to look the way you teched it ever again because That's the angle is going to be different. The distance is going to be different. I mean, so it's not something that I really wanted to rely on. Um, and again, with, with the tour, Corey Paddock um, did the first pass of that at the tour tech city. I think it was in Denver. Um, and then I came out and joined for a few days. I didn't spend I didn't spend a lot of time uh, there with them. And then I think I checked on it again in, in Los Angeles. I spent a few days with them in Los Angeles also. And then when it came time for the second national tour, the light plot got way more technological because there was way less time to load it in. So I I do remember this insane, insane, this great phone call I got was, you know, basically saying like all of these lights, is it okay if we make the whole thing moving lights? I was like, yeah, I think that's going to be fine. Yeah, sure. Like all this stuff that wasn't leds can we make all of these things leds like yeah sure great make them all LED. i mean the reason they weren't that way was for for money they would have been leds if we could have done it in the first place so yeah so the second national tour of peter and the star catcher was was the most technological version of the show 
I'd like to ask you about flesh and bone. You know, I mean, capturing stage lighting on camera is always a challenge, but having it look sculpted and dramatic and not sort of weird and sometimes overlit and underlit is even harder. Yeah. So as I said, my involvement with Flesh and Bone started with Henry Dunn. Um, I worked on two episodes of the six for the season. Um, they shot it at SUNY Purchase, where I went to college, in a theater that I maybe walked into four times in the entire four years I was at that college, uh, in the big concert hall, which students don't use. So yeah, um, you know, there's the camera department. That's a huge part of how... It looks because well, we're not designing it for the eye, we're designing it for the camera. And so the DP and the gaffer um, were a part of the process. Now, um, they did not, again, like they didn't tell me how to light anything, but they told me when there was too much light. And I, and I don't mean too bright. I mean, specifically... Um, when they, there's at certain points, they wanted more shadow. I mean, you know, they wanted, because especially that, that it was a very dark show, I mean, in, in, in content and in style. And I, I don't mean the, the lighting for the ballet part. I mean, the entire series was, I would say pretty dark, um, beautifully. So, I mean, I'm not, this is not a criticism. It was, it was, but it was dark, very single source lit. And so the, so the ballet didn't want to feel like it was like out of left field. So. I lit it. First of all, I lit it with that in mind. The choreographer Ethan um, and I worked very closely together on 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 what the show, what it would look like, and I believe like I was up there with the dancers and Ethan pre-lighting it before the entire camera crew showed up. I think we had three days to light the whole thing, um, where I think I had like a camera and a little monitor that didn't really, that was completely unhelpful. Yeah, it's like, by the way, this camera isn't anything like the camera we're going to have, and, and, and the LUT we're applying to it isn't anything like the LUT we're going to apply to the final product, but, you know, here you go. It was a total fucking waste of time, actually, like their little camera, but they were appeasing me because I kept saying, I need a camera to light this, and they were, of course, like, to actually give me the real thing with a camera operator and a monitor would have cost them way more money yeah, than they wanted to Yeah, that's not going to happen either. <laughs> right. So they, so they gave me something to shut me up, and I was like... I was just so happy to get anything that I was like, great, thank you. And then we started doing it. And I was like, this is not helpful, but okay. But, you know, we're going to make the best of this. But so, so, so one day it went from like um, a lighting designer and a bunch of dancers and a choreographer lighting a ballet to an industry when the entire film crew showed up and took the place by storm. And all of a sudden there were a hundred more crew people in the room. And while I had done that, you know, things like that before, this was just, I don't know, it it like descended. It was pretty spectacular. I mean, there was a a juice tent and an omelet maker and like things we don't get in the the American theater. Um, It just was a very pleasant place to go to work. Yeah. Really, truly. I mean, you know, but, but the, the, the hours were, you know, a lot of people complain about the hours in theater, the hours in film, 10 times worse, but yeah, so you have worse. no idea. <laughs> yeah. You have no idea. Um, right. I mean, the fact that the fact that they recently made a rule that says you can't work more than 14 hours a day, like that they capped it after people were going more than 14 hours a day, they made a rule that you can't work more than 14 hours a day. That says enough right there. Like yeah. that's, you know, so, and I don't, I, I, I'm not one that minds that tr- truly. I mean, especially if you're being compensated for it, like work me as hard as you want and pay me for it. Fine. That's the problem with theater. They don't really pay for it. Um, and they don't have someone making omelets next to your tech table, which was really cool. 
so the film crew descended. We started working, and uh, and the DP, like you know, he first of all, tr- I didn't really light it for the camera because I didn't have a camera there, but I lit it knowing what the camera would do. Um, they were amazing. Like the DP and the gaffer were amazing, and, and the director. They were great about taking what I had done and capturing that instead of telling me to change a whole bunch of stuff they they put filters on the camera they they you know they set themselves up in a way that would make what i was trying to create look good and then at a certain point the dp said okay um can you turn all of the light off from stage right that was one that was one of the one of one of the things he said at a certain point I was like, wow, okay. So I did it and he starts shooting and I'm looking at the monitor, I'm looking at the choreographer and it was like super dark and you couldn't actually see the choreography. It looked gorgeous. I'm sure it's exactly what the DP wanted, but it was also like, again, like if if I were to say I'm a storyteller at heart, I knew that the the way they were shooting it with it being so dark on one side, we weren't actually seeing the dance. We were seeing like something, but it wasn't it wasn't right. So like we had a little meeting and I begged them to like, let me turn a little bit of light on. <laughs> I was like, can we have to like, a, we have to have a little bit of light from like from both sides. So, you know, anyway, that's, that's a deep dive into something that maybe isn't interesting. Uh, I think it is actually. I mean, personally, oh, I've done a feature and I've done episodic and I can start finding it difficult to follow what they're trying to do because like they have an idea of how all these shots are going to go together. Yeah. But you can't always pluck that information from them. Right. And also they don't work with lighting designers. Like they don't work with someone called a lighting designer very often. I mean, they do sometimes, but you know, not, not enough to understand that I was also creating something that I wasn't just a member of the camera crew, which is probably how a lot of them, you know, see the, the lighting designer. Um, I wasn't just someone who was working for the gaffer. I was like, you know, because the ballet was a whole separate piece. I mean, it was part of this six episode miniseries, but it was also a standalone thing. And, you know, I was creating the lighting for the ballet. Um, and also, you know, once the camera, once the entire crew is on set, they did not want to wait for me to do anything. Yeah. And I remember at one point, like, you know, they had switched sides, like they, they flipped everything. So the, they were shooting from the other side through everyone. And the specials were then like the angle was wrong on, for one, one moment, like there were down pools on all the dancers, like twirling or whatever they do. I'll say twirling, but someone who knows dance is probably going to send me an email. Like they weren't twirling. They were arabesquing. Um, no, they were, they were moving in, in a pool of light and the direction of light based on the camera angle was wrong. And I remember like walking on stage with like 150 people standing there with my walkie talkie and saying, you are not shooting this until I fix this. <laughs> like there's no fucking way. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, fine. And it took me like all of five minutes to fix something. Which when when there's 200 people all staring at you, it feels like an awfully long time. It did feel like a long time. And my <laughs> poor, like our, the poor programmer, like Victor Seastone, who's like one of the better programmers I work with, um, was we love know, Victor Seastone. He's great. Working as fast as he could, and I was just like screaming into my, like not even screaming, like into my walkie-talkie because they refuse to use headsets on film shoots for some reason. Like Victor, please faster, faster, yeah. faster. <laughs> Well, then it's like, um, well, look, I need you to work live just so just so they can see something still happening. Yeah, that's true, too. Yeah. But it but it was good. And and I remember, you know, it's what's great is that when I saw the finished product, I saw that shot and it looked really good. And if I hadn't made that adjustment with the light, it probably would have looked fine. But it looked 
better having made the adjustment. And they don't even know. They probably don't even know why it looks better or that it looked better. I'm sure, you know, they don't. And, and maybe, maybe at the end of the day, it looked, it would have looked just fine to them not to have let me make that adjustment. But I know it looked better having made the adjustment, having seen the finished product. Well, I mean, that's the funny thing about about film, in my opinion, that it's like the whole room is full of people who are specialists yeah. in that thing they do. And they're all trying to bring that level of attention to detail to their one little area. Yeah. You know, and, it, and it's because no one can ever stay on top of all of these things. Yeah. It's like distributed processing almost. Yeah. And they're all, I will say, like, at least my experience on anything I've done, they're all really good. I mean, everyone knows their shit on the, on these shoots. Um, so that's that's also nice, you know, when you work with a whole room full of, as you say, specialists who are really special at what they do and like know how to do it. Yeah. Um, the other fascinating thing about my experience on that was just, um, you know, we just got finished talking about like 14 hour days, but there are people who work for a certain number of hours a day. And when that's over, they leave. You know, the the set designer, he, he was, the, you know, he was the production designer and the art director of this TV show, and he clocks out at six. Now, there was a big scenic move in the middle of the ballet that we were supposed to get to before six. We didn't get there. And, you know, they all left. The, you know, they were off the clock, so they left. And that is that is just the way it is. There wasn't a question. It wasn't like, a, you know, I should stay because we're getting to the part where the scenery moves. No, we didn't get there. Like, it's six o'clock. My day is done. I'm going to pick up my kids. That's what happens now. I'll be back tomorrow. And if they don't like the way the set move looked, we'll reshoot it. And that's and that's just the way it goes. Yeah. What are some key takeaways you had from that? Or like, what are key things that you knew going in that maybe someone else going into a situation like that might not have had that, that they could really use? Well, the gaffer is your best friend. Like, has to like be, be, your, be very... Be very close with the gaffer, be friends with the gaffer, um, also the DP, but particularly the gaffer. Uh, that that's a big takeaway. How how important that gaffer is in the in the in that in that environment um, to to the lighting designer. Um, a takeaway which I which I did, and I take even 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 though I did this, I will still say that the takeaway is bring a programmer, bring your programmer that you want to work with. It, things happen too fast for you to get stuck with someone who you don't know and who doesn't know the, um, the console or, or the situation. So, um, I think that's really bring your team. Like I had, I had my programmer and I had my assistant, um, and it wouldn't have gone as well without those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the UPM, um, uh, unit production manager is another very important person to, you know, to get out, to be, have on your side. And it's just how long any one thing takes, like any shot, it just, you know, it takes time. No, and this is not a negative. It's just a fact, like shooting film is, it just takes a long time. You set up a shot, you sit there, you wait a long time, you move on to the next shot. Uh, and that's part of the day. And that's why there are so many omelets. I mean, the other thing that we were doing, so we were lighting the ballet, but the, um, as I said, we were involved in two episodes and the, the first episode that we did that I was involved with was the dress rehearsal and then a whole bunch of stuff backstage. So then that was a real, um, collaboration between DP gaffer and lighting designer to, you know, artistically light backgrounds in this theater 
you know, light, like, you know, people with some of my rig in, in combination with what they used as the TV rig. So, you know, there was a lot and I actually learned a lot about TV lighting, um, while I was there for that time too. And we're going to leave it there for now with our guest, Jeff Kreuter. He'll be back for more on our next episode. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think. And you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light. We tweet at Podcasting Light. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by the Lane Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show.